Dear Father, we thank you for the words of John here. We know that they were recorded by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we thank you that you have not left us wondering what it looks like to do deeds of righteousness, that you have not left us without the source, the ability to do righteousness in the Holy Spirit on the basis of your Son's perfect gift on the cross. We pray that we might learn from this uh, how we might act in the body of Christ so that we can glorify you here on earth. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We are coming close to the end of our second spiral through 1 John. He works through these very important topics of life and how to live life. Uh, light is perfection. Uh, the absence of sin and love. So as you'll see this morning, we come back to this topic of love, but he's applying it to our lives here. We looked at the anointing, the anointing of the spirit, which is different than the spirit of the world. This is our ability to actually do the things that we are commanded in scripture to do. You see in the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to keep the law, but they were not given the anointing of the spirit to do the law as part of being Israel, but we as the church, we as Christians, from the moment we believe we are anointed with the Spirit. And so from the moment we believe, we have the ability to begin obeying God. This only works as we abide in Him, as we rest in Him, as we continue in fellowship with Him. And then that finally leads to proper action. Notice that this is not coming with action first. It's not action first and then mentality. But first, we want to see how are we thinking about God? How are we thinking about the world? What do we believe? And that should naturally lead into acting. So if you have screwed up in your mindset, the first few aspects of this, how we should think about God, then the acting is not going to look right. So that's what we are looking at this morning in amity and action. Amity is a kind of old English word. It comes from the Latin uh, amare, which is to love. It's where we get the Spanish word amigo or the French word ami and the Spanish word amor. This is a love word. This is a word of love and friendship. And naturally, as we love, as we love the way that God loves and demonstrates, this should lead to action. Love is an active word, not a passive word. So let's look at the main idea this morning. And this kind of ties in with last week. Believers are all made righteous in Christ, but the righteousness ought to work its way from position, that means something that is declared true about you, into practice, into the life of the believer. So what is true about us in the heavenlies, what is true about us in Christ, should lead us to actually live differently. As we grow in knowledge of who he is and what he is like, as we see him more clearly through his word, we are made to look more like him in the world. The mark of maturity in the life of a believer is the manifestation of positional righteousness into outward acts of agape love for his fellow believers. So we are going to spend a lot of time this morning and actually for the next four weeks at least, talking about love, God's kind of love. And this morning, we have to distinguish that from the world's kind of love, specifically love that is self-centered. We want to see how selfless God's love is. 
And we begin with that all-important fact about who we are as Christians. And as Christians, we have two natures. The old nature, that body of sin, still lingers while this physical body remains. It awaits the coming of the Lord, and that's why we keep our eyes on the horizon waiting for him to come, because that is the moment where we are permanently separated from the presence of sin, where it will not attack our bodies anymore. But we need to know how to live in light of the fact that we are still capable of sin. That in this world, not only are we capable of sin, but it constantly wants to have its way with our bodies. It constantly wants to be energized and activated by the world. Our sin nature wants to rule the roost. But the anointing of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, is there and ready to activate and energize the new nature. We have been fitted with the capacity to do righteousness. And that should lead to us depending on the Spirit to energize that activity of righteousness. 1 John 3, 7, B, and 8a draw this distinction as John moves from one idea to the next. The one who practices righteousness or the one who does acts of righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Remember, because Christ is righteous and we have his imputed righteousness, we for the first time are able to do righteous deeds because anything done apart from God is by nature unrighteous. Anything done apart from God is itself the epitome of evil, whether outwardly that action looks the same or not. To do it yourself without God is evil. And so the one who practices sin is of the devil. There are these two sources that we go to for spiritual power. Either the world, which energizes deeds of unrighteousness, or to the spirit. Oops. 1 John 3.10 draws this distinction then. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. This word children, technia, is born ones. We could say it's the product. By this, the product of God and the product of the devil are obvious. We see the old nature has been born in sin, born in the devil's cosmos system, born ready to do the will of Satan. But the spirit is born capable only of righteousness. And so we have that option to dwell or abide either in the old nature, which is born of the devil, or in the new nature, which is born of God. No one who is born of God sins. The new nature cannot commit sins because his seed abides in him. This came directly from God. And this is what will at some point be matured into perfect Christ-likeness. When we see him and we are made like him, it is the stripping away of the old nature, not just the disenfranchising of the old nature. And so Romans 7.20, if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Notice which one of Paul's natures he identifies with as his true identity. 
Yes, the sin nature still lingers, but that is no longer him. He has been made new. He has been remade in Christ. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body, from the body of this death. Paul comes to the end of himself trying to do righteous deeds in his flesh. He simply cannot. He simply is unable to do what God has commanded unless he depends on God to do them through him. And this has all to do with the way he thinks about God. This has all to do with what occupies his mind. If what occupies his mind is how am I going to do this, he will never be able to. But if what occupies his mind is the finished work of Christ, he is empowered to do so. And so he makes this radical shift. And this is the shift that, Lord willing, all believers will come to in their lives. This isn't a salvation moment. This is a sanctification moment. This is a moment where Paul peeks into spiritual maturity and sees exactly what it looks like. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. Notice it's in his mental capacities. But on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. When we try to just do the deeds of God, we are not doing the deeds of God. But when we dwell on him and when we think of him, this will work its way out into our actions. And this is very important as we look at this passage this morning, which is going to command us to do outward acts of righteousness. We must at all times remember that whatever outward acts of righteousness we are doing, we are not doing in our own power. But we do it because the Spirit has empowered us to do that. And so we also want to listen to the guiding of the Spirit. When he is urging action, we don't say no, that is quenching the Spirit. And as the Spirit is quenched, its voice becomes nearly unrecognizable to us. But when we know him and when we occupy all of our thoughts with him, his voice becomes clear. We begin to know who he is. We begin to know him deeply and intimately. So let's look at some examples. What is typical of righteousness? Paul gives us this supreme example. And that supreme example of outward righteousness or righteousness properly working through the body of the believer is love. Love is really at the pinnacle of Christian experience. This should really be manifested in all believers. This is a basic, but this is also the height of our joy and experience. 1 John 3.10b, our first scripture for this morning, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. He is seamlessly moving from the topic of righteousness to its exemplary example, nor the one who does not love his brother. This is a foundational command. We are told explicitly that we must love one another just as he has loved us. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. This isn't anything new in the Christian experience that John is adding. This was what John was instructed at from the very beginning. And 
as you go through the Gospels, especially in the early parts of the Gospels, you see that John did not understand this from the beginning. But John came to understand this perhaps better than any other disciple. And he was more prepared to write a Gospel about love and an epistle about love than any of the other apostles. As we will see later, he was the one disciple who saw the ultimate act of love face to face. And he was changed forever because of it. John 13, 34, the night before Christ died. In the upper room where there are just believers, just 11 disciples, Judas had already left. Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. The new piece of this commandment was not to love one another, but the way in which we ought to love one another. In the Old Testament, they were commanded to love one another just as they loved themselves. But as we'll see as we go through and look at what divine love is, love of self without the love of God is actually very unhealthy unless that is practically calibrated, then it is not as good a command as love one another as I have loved you. Because this is a different kind of love than mankind can manifest apart from God. And then he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Notice that this does not say, by this you are saved. By this you are eternally secured. No, but notice that this is in the presence of men. When they act on the righteousness that they have, when they manifest the love that God has enabled in them for the first time ever, then those who look on will see the righteousness of God working in believers. It is a sad state of affairs that much of the church is not characterized by love. And I think it's simply because we don't understand what it is. We don't understand how it differs from the world's love. Our minds are wired to think of love the way we grow, grew up thinking of love, rather than thinking of it the way that God reveals it in his word. And so this is going to show the world something different, something they've never seen before, something they've never experienced. Though they tried to mimic it, they can never perfectly capture it. And so this is intimacy. This is fellowship with God. When love is manifest in the body of the believer, when love has its perfect outworking, then the world looks on you and sees Christ in you. This is the second time John broaches the topic of love in his epistle. And the first time he kind of just dusts over the top of it. And I think that's because he's introducing it before he goes into the spiritual power available to the believer on the basis of their salvation in the anointing of the Spirit. So that now, after bringing it up in chapter 2, he's able to dig his heels in and show us exactly what this is. And so when we first encountered it, we encountered it as a command, as an allusion to what John had been told in the upper room. 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him. Remember, that is an intimate knowledge. If we keep his commandments, 
In 1 John 2.9, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. This distinguishes our fellowship. We're able to see whether or not we are in fellowship by what's in our hearts, what's in our minds, and how we are thinking about one another. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Love being the pinnacle of the Christian experience finds its antithesis in hatred. When there is hate in the heart of a believer, especially for another believer, this is going to affect spiritual blindness in your walk. This is looking at Christ and looking at what he did and saying, nope, that's not for me. I do not want to live that way. I know better. This person wronged me. I will hate him. This is spiritual blindness. So whereas we demonstrated intimacy through love based on obeying commandments in chapter 2, now we see that intimacy is demonstrated by acts of love on the basis of our imputed righteousness. Because we are able, we should do this. And it is a product of fellowship. 1 John 3.11 says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not only was this the message from the beginning of the of the church age, of the beginning of Christ teaching about the church in the upper room. But here in the beginning of John's epistle, it starts with this idea as well. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen. All of this concerning the word of life. Why does John proclaim this to them? We proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. All of this has to do with fellowship. Fellowship within the body of believers. Fellowship with the apostles on sound doctrine. And then fellowship with God the Father and Christ the Son. So let's talk for a second about what love is in view here. In Greek, there are four words for love. Eros is one of the most popular that we have heard of, but this actually does not appear once in the scriptures. This classical or ancient Greek word just litters the pages of secular authors in the Greek world. This is the love of passion, of blind impulse, infatuation, lust, mania. This is obsession with someone or something. And this is ultimately subject-centered pleasure. That means the one acting on Eros is the one who is benefiting from it. Unfortunately, this is probably one of the most prolific loves in this world. The feasting off of one another for pleasure. And yet this is considered love. Ironside, in one of his commentaries, commented that he believes the Holy Spirit protected the purity of Scripture from this word by not allowing it even once in scripture, even in rebukes. He said this just became a filthy word. 
by the way the Greeks used it. The second love is storge. This is the love of natural affection, of instinctual creature love, the love that family members naturally have for one another, or the love that patriots naturally have for their country. This is a love based on pride, family pride, national pride. This one might seem, at first glance, selfless. And in many ways, the acts can look selfless, but this is still only selfless in a human sense. It is perhaps one of the most provocative things that anyone could ever say, that even fighting and dying for one's country, if not done for God, is still a selfish act. Because this is seeking glory, if not even for yourself, for your country. But this is still nonetheless seeking glory apart from God. As Americans, that shakes us to the core. It makes us uncomfortable in our seats. But it's absolutely true. The things we're willing to die for should be because Christ died for us not for glory apart from him. Storge protects us. It's something naturally built into us. It's something that survived the fall. Adam and Eve had storge for one another. We see them after the fall even seeking to protect each other, covering one another in works of their own hands, works of their own righteousness. We see them trying to protect their children but guess what? It all ultimately fails because they are trying to do this apart from God. This is the best that mankind can come up with, with selfless love. And it is still self-serving. Storge is only found negatively in the New Testament. That's the Greek word astorge, where you put the A before it to negate the word. It occurs in Romans and it occurs in 2 Timothy in a long list of everything bad about the world. Where it says you don't even have love for your families. This should be a basic. But when you so separate yourself from God, even this storge, that's natural. We find it even in the animal kingdom where they protect their young. Even storge is corrupted by sin. The third Greek word we find is philia. This is a peaceful love, a fondness, a friendship, and a liking. It's pleasing, but notice still this is subject-centered, not object-centered. I hang around you because I like you. You make me feel good. This friendship is satisfying to me. This is indeed a pleasant word in Greek, but it is not object-centered. None of these loves are object-centered. Some involve the object. Eros, I don't think, even involves the object. There is no concern at all for the object. Storge at least concerns the object, but ultimately it is for the subject. Philia is very subject-centered. In James 4.4, 4, James calls his audience as adulteresses. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship, philia, 
with the world is hostility to God. Finding the world pleasing and pleasurable. Finding satisfaction in it. With the world is hostility to God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God, a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. This is unsettling. Even God has philia towards men, though. Titus 3, 4. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. There was pleasure for God in saving us as well. He found something lovable in his creation. Luke 20 Jesus warns, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplace. They love that sort of adulation. They love status. They love being recognized for their accomplishments, for their works. But God loves the son. The son was pleasing to him. The father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Notice the difference. Who is the subject? When it is God, we see that his pleasure is found in good things. When it is man, the temptation is to find pleasure in sour, corrupted things. We ought to find our pleasure, our philia, in the things of God. Here's an a very interesting and very well-known passage of scripture where love agape and love philia are put against one another. This is after the three denials by Peter. This is after the crucifixion and resurrection when Jesus comes back for a final word with his disciples and he restores Peter to fellowship by giving him the opportunity to claim him three times rather than deny him three times. Before Peter's denials, he had been very quick to say that he loves Jesus more than all of the other disciples love him. Peter got a taste of reality. And let's see how his understanding changed. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? more than these. Is your agape love for me greater than all the other disciples? Peter knew at this point that his actions could not demonstrate the truth of that statement. And so he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Phileo, you know, Jesus, that you are pleasing to me, that I enjoy being around you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time he dropped them more than these. You can't say you love me more than all the disciples. Can you say just at the basics that you have agape love for me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Phileo. You are pleasing to me. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Jesus asks him a third time, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? What's changed? Simon, son of John, am I pleasing to you? Can you at least say that you do not hate me? And Peter was grieved and said to him, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. In the next passage, which I didn't include here, Jesus goes on to tell Peter the way that he will grow and demonstrate his love for Jesus, that Peter is even going to die for Jesus, the ultimate act of self-sacrifice. He's telling Peter, you are not yet mature, but you are going to get there. Jesus has restored him to fellowship for the purpose of continuing in maturity, moving from worldly love, the love that we are able to manifest without God, into that perfect kind of love that defines God, that only he can produce in the hearts of believers. Now notice this. After Peter is told how he's going to die, he looks around and he sees another disciple. And he identifies him as the disciple whom Jesus loved, agape love. And this is the disciple who ended up writing this epistle. The disciple who everyone recognized as the object of Jesus' agape love is more than qualified to tell us about that love of Christ. He experienced it firsthand. He saw it more vividly than anyone else on earth. And when we read his words in this epistle, we should be shaken to our cores. This is love like no one else has ever experienced. And he wants to share this with us. Remember, we are to have fellowship with John as we have fellowship with Jesus and God the Father and the apostles. He is inviting us into this love relationship that he has with Christ. He is inviting us in. And so what is this agape love? How is it different than everything else we experience? This agape love is selfless concern for the well-being of others. It is a divine love. Love that only God can manifest. And so notice in Ephesians 5.25, where the world might put in a word like eros or storge, God puts in the word agape. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. His command isn't, husbands, have incredible passion for your wives. This can help in a relationship, but the foundation of it cannot be passion. The foundation of it must be selfless. It is not husbands have storge for your wives, take pride in them and seek to protect them. We should do this too, but it should be fueled by agape love. It should not be the product of creature love, but of Calvary love. In Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love, agape, towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were unpleasing in our actions, while there was nothing pleasurable about us, he gave selflessly of himself and died for us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have eternal life. This is not just a giving up of himself, but a giving everything to the object. And this is the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit being the product. This is something that is produced not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Apart from walking in fellowship with Spirit, we cannot do this. Apart from walking in fellowship with God, we cannot do this. And notice, I think it's, uh, it's listed hierarchically. Love comes first. The fruit, which is a singular fruit, this is the product. When the product is born out in the life of the believer, all of this is true. I've heard people ask, uh, what's your fruit of the Spirit? There are not fruits of the Spirit to choose from. There is fruit of the Spirit, one, singular. This is the product. Love, joy, peace. How much has John's letter focused on love, joy, and peace? Peace with God through the reconciliation. Jesus bridged that gap in the incarnation. Joy, when we are in fellowship with him, we are to reach joy. And love, this is the foundational activity in the body. When you are walking in the spirit, all of this is present and available. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Remember what we saw last week. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Things against the law. Things against God's righteousness. And sin is lawlessness. But no one who abides in him sins. As we are resting in him. As we are in fellowship with him. As we are not quenching the spirit. We are not grieving the spirit. But we are yielding to the spirit. We are occupying our minds with Christ. We are looking at the world through his lens rather than the world's. We are in fellowship with him. And when we are abiding in him, love, joy, peace, the fruit of the spirit is present. And so this should tell us what exactly he is meaning when he says we should love one another. We should love one another with a love that we cannot manifest ourselves, a love that we cannot do apart from God. And so we need to be in fellowship with him to do this. We also see, though, what is typical of unrighteousness. Sometimes in order to see what is true more clearly, we have to see what is false. We have to see it put up against its opposite or its negative. And John chooses to go right to the source right to the very beginning of when this evil started to manifest in outward actions towards one another. And we see the evil source of Cain's actions. First John 3.12 says, not as Cain. Remember, we were just told to love one another. Now we are told not to love our brothers like Cain loved his brother. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. In John 8, 44, we see that Satan is 
that source of evil activity, the source of unrighteousness. You are, the uh, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. When did Satan murder? It was with Adam and Eve. Although we might say that this was just assisted suicide, the Bible looks at it as murder. Satan says, question God's word. Separate yourself from the source of life. And you will be like him. He's keeping you under his thumb. Don't let him do that. Separate yourself. But when they are separated from the source of life, they immediately died. This spiritual death that they experienced, its product is physical death. Being separated from God in the spirit means the eventual separation of the soul from the body. Because mankind at the beginning separated themselves from the source of life, all man died spiritually and physically. 1 John 3.8, John already told us, the one who sins is of the devil. Their power is sourced, not in the spirit, but in the world. And why did Cain do this? What led him to do this? What went wrong in Cain's thinking? John asks us that rhetorical question. For what reason did he slay him? Now just uh, out of interest, perhaps, this word slay is the Greek word asphoxin, where we get the English word esophagus. It says, for what reason did Cain slit Abel's throat? Often when this is depicted, we see him beating him with a rock in a field. As if this were just a crime of opportunity. That passion rose up and he killed him with whatever was around. But this has the idea of premeditation to it. Cain prepared this murder. And he prepared it when he was criticized for not offering the proper sacrifice, for not slitting the throat of a lamb that was prepared for him. Instead, he says, God, if you want a sacrifice, I will give you one, but it will still be from my hands. This evil that we see right from the beginning of scripture, this is the evil of separation from God, the evil of envy, Arrogance, selfishness, self-centeredness. Why did Cain get so angry? Because Cain's deeds were evil. He tried to act apart from God. He did not receive the sacrifice that God instructed. God said you need the blood of someone else to cover your sins. And Cain says, no, I think I'll offer the works of my hands instead. God did not accept that. How often do we present to God the works of our hands and say, Lord, you better accept this. And then when we see someone walking in the spirit, we begin to hate them. Because we know that their works are accepted. And ours are not. How many days or nights could we spend in charities in order to earn a bit of favor with God and then see that 
In scripture, it says that all of that is filthy rags. Wouldn't we be tempted to hate our brother, just like Cain did? You see, if we think that we are incapable of this, we are doing ourselves an injustice. Why did Cain bring anything to God in the first place? This was an act of worship. Cain brought a worship sacrifice to God. Cain may very well have been a believer, but he did not want to worship God the way that God instructed. He did not want to let God work through him. He wanted to bring God a sacrifice of his own hands. And so he hated his brother who submitted to God because he would not himself submit. Hebrews 11.4 gives us a divine commentary on this interaction. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So notice that Cain's outward sacrifice was a testimony of his inward righteousness. This righteousness had its proper effect on his body, and he served the Lord with it. And when the world saw him serve the Lord with it, the world hated him. Even his brother hated him. We are being commanded in 1 John to do deeds of righteousness, to worship God the way he is he should be worshipped. To offer not works of our own hands, but works of the Spirit. And from the beginning, the result of that was that the world hated and became murderous towards Abel. We are being asked to put ourselves in this position of Abel. Standing our ground despite what the world might throw at us. And we are told not to be like Cain. For when we see our brothers and sisters offering that perfect sacrifice, that spirit-led sacrifice to the Lord, we're not to hate them because what they do is righteous and what we do is not. Instead, we should emulate them. We should be more like them. Just as Paul often commands his people to be more like him. He tells them, think like Christ and copy my actions. Because Paul was also thinking like Christ. Genesis 4, 2 through 3. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruits of the ground. Now to Cain, it may have looked like both of these were fruits of their own labors. But one was the proper sacrifice, the spirit-led sacrifice, the prescribed sacrifice, and the other was not. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Yes, that's heartbreaking. But how often do we do this. I read my Bible for two hours this morning and God didn't grant my prayers. How dare him? This is the same offer that Cain made. I did my part. God must do his. Have you done your part? Have you sought to get something to spend on your own pleasures from God rather than just simply serving him? 
Have you given an act of worship? Or an act of selfishness? A barter, a trade, a bargain, a transaction with God. This is not a relationship. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Notice, God is trying to restore Cain to fellowship. Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you offer the proper sacrifice, if you come to me on the basis, not of your own works, but of mine, will not you in your mentality, in your way of thinking, be elevated? Will not you in your heart be lifted up from rather than anger to love, joy, and peace? And if you do not do well, if you do not restore fellowship here, sin is crouching at the door. Being outside of fellowship with God is one thing. Maintaining being outside of fellowship with God is yet another. And it is dangerous. Sin is ready to attack the believer who walks away from fellowship. Sin is ready to pile on top of the believer. Because he cannot touch his soul, but he can absolutely destroy his experience. He can absolutely destroy his ability to do good works in this world. And, it is, and its desire is for you. It's leering for you. It is gunning for you. But you must master it. And how? How do we master sin? Only by the victory of Christ. He does that work in us. And so we look at the egoism of Cain. What went wrong in his way of thinking? The first wrong was self-righteousness rather than God-righteousness. He looked to himself and the work of his own hands. He looked to what he could produce and said, this is good and good enough. This was arrogance. And when it was rejected, he suddenly decided that he is the victim of God. God did this to me. God doesn't love me. But does he understand that it's God's love that he is refusing when he tries to bring a sacrifice of his own hands? It's God's sacrifice. It's the power of God working through the believer available because of the death of Christ that the believer is refusing when he says, no God, not your way, but mine. Cain is self-absorbed. He is focused on his own feelings, his own emotions, and his own problems. And it leads him to solve his own problems by murdering his brother. No concern whatsoever with the feelings, emotions, or problems that his brother might face, where we're commanded to carry each other's burdens in loving the brothers. Cain could not only not do that, but he sacrificed his own brother's good for his own. Cain was self-indulged. He had a fantasy of solving his own problems, and he did so apart from God. And his fantasy worked its way out in offering God a blood sacrifice, but still not the proper blood sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of his brother. 
he was self-justified. No one else is going to help me. I will have to help myself. How often do we come to this point where we say this and how often do we assess, is it help that I'm giving myself or harm? God won't let me harm myself this way. I guess I'll harm myself. Imagine if we thought about it that way. Imagine if we thought about it God's way, how much we would change in our activity. Finally, Cain became self-deluded. He created his own framework of reality apart from God so that his actions could be self-justified, so that he could indulge himself, so that he could be fully absorbed with himself, so that he could claim that he is righteous in his wicked acts. And he does so because he rejects the righteousness of God. He refuses to be absorbed with God and God's thoughts. He refuses to worship. He refuses the justification of Christ, both before God, perhaps, but especially before men. And he becomes self-deluded. Romans 8, 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, the law of righteousness. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Remember, the flesh produces sin, but the spirit produces righteousness. Where are we leaving our mind? Are we leaving our mind in the flesh? Are we energizing it by occupying our thoughts with fleshly desires, fleshly needs, fleshly pleasures? Or are we occupying our minds with the mind of Christ? Next, we are, look, or we are told to expect love, but we are also told where not to expect it from. John narrows his audience here, where he's talking in generalities in the first few verses. He uses, once again, a vocative to tell us who his audience is. He names his audience. He's done this already with the technia. He uses this six times. Born ones, fellow believers, those who have been born of God by the Spirit. Paideia, speaking to the yet immature. He uses that three times. Neonaskoi and Pateris he uses twice, those young, virile men who are growing quickly in the knowledge of doctrine and need to learn how to apply it. And those Pateris, those adults, those fathers in the faith who are able to nurture others, he uses both of those twice. But here and here alone, he uses the vocative Adelphoi, brothers. He's drawing a very stark contrast between the brotherhood of Cain and Abel. But he's reminding us as well that being born ones, being technia or paideia of God means that we ourselves are brothers. We are brothers and sisters in this body of Christ. And here he is more focused than anywhere else in his epistle on how we treat one another based on this truth. So he does not want his audience to forget we are a family. And we should not act like the family of Cain and Abel. But he does say, do not be surprised if the world hates you. So often, 
Christians become upset, depressed, because we are looking at the world to love us now that we are Christians. It's not built for that. It's built for the opposite of that. We are an antithetical element within the world. We are not part of the world system. And if we want to be a part of the world system, we do not do so in our spirit. We must live in our flesh in order to be part of the world. So if we want to be loved by the world, we have to abandon fellowship and abandon the spirit. What kind of life is that? We look to unbelievers and say, why don't they love me? Why don't they give me? Why can't I get a bit of their time, their attention? What kind of love are we exercising? This is not agape love, but this is eros, storge, philia, for the world. We are told not to love the world or the things of the world. John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Your identity in Christ sets you up against the world. We should be ready for that. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We should not let the design of the world ruin the design of the kingdom. We should not let our bad experiences in the world sour our thinking towards God. God didn't make the world comfortable for me to live in. He must hate me. He separated me from the world. He made this uncomfortable. Why would he do that to me? I don't matter at all to him, do I? You do not want to be friends with the world. Friendship with the world means enmity with God. John 3.19 This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. I lived in South Korea for a few years. I was never dumb enough to go over to North Korea and say, why can't they just love me here? This sounds ridiculous, right? They would want to kill me. I'm the great Satan. I am their enemy there. Why would I go into enemy territory and say, South Korea hates me because North Korea doesn't love me? This is what we do when we blame the world's lack of love for us on God. And this happens. Oh man, this happens. So many Christians have a beat down, run down life because we are living in the world, but we are not trusting in the strength of the Lord. We want him to solve our problems in the world rather than preparing us for the next. We don't care about the next. Our minds are not occupied with the next. We are not ready and waiting for his coming. We might believe it's going to happen. We might think about it occasionally as an escape, and it will be an escape. But we are not occupied with preparing our hearts and minds and spirit for Christ-likeness, for health, for maturity, 
We spend so much time occupied with building up our treasures on earth and complaining when they're not getting big enough and good enough. And we spend no time building our eternal home in heaven. We spend no time building up rewards in heaven. We spend no time preparing to rule and reign with him. And so we spend this world dejected and beat down by the world. And we will spend the next not experiencing the same elevation that we may otherwise. Not experiencing those riches of glory by which we can glorify him in the world to come. If you want to blame him for a bad experience here, you're going to separate yourself from having the best possible experience there. Stop thinking about this world and start thinking about the next. This is spiritual maturity. John says, we know that we have passed out of death and into life. This we is set up against the world. The world was the last word in the previous statement. And now John includes this unnecessary we. In the Greek, he does not need to write this word. It's contained within the verb. And so it's emphatic. The world hates you. But we, on the other hand, we are separated from it. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. This is how we know that we are experiencing that life that he has put in us. This is how we know that we are growing when we experience this love for one another. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. This is true of every single believer. And sometimes we get frustrated that we don't feel saved. We don't feel eternally secure. It is true of us nonetheless. If we have at any time put our trust in him, he has grabbed us and held us secure. But do you want to feel this? Do you want to know what it feels like and looks like? Then change your way of thinking about your brothers in Christ, about Christ. Move your desires from self-serving to other serving, emulate the mind of Christ. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It is not working as a dynamic force of new way of living. Yes, he will have eternal life. Yes, he will be present in eternity with Christ. And yes, when he sees Christ face to face, he will be like him. But do you want to know what that is like today? Then stop living like the world. Stop occupying your mind with the cares, concerns, and worries of the world. And start occupying your mind with the perfect, completed work of Christ. We'll finish really quick here. We get an ultimate example of the perfect expression of love. Because we want to know what it is. We want to know what it looks like. As humans, we're very tactile creatures. We need an example. And man, do we get one. John tells us we know love by this, 
that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In John's gospel, when we see Christ on the cross, we notice that there is a group of women around him and only one of his disciples. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now this name for this disciple here is significant. The disciple whom he loved with agape love. We've been told this again and again and again and again through this gospel. But here we see the very heart of that love. And when John sat there at the foot of the cross and looked up at Christ on the cross, he saw the greatest expression of love that this world has ever manifested. Never has there ever been a greater example. So when John says that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved, he knows exactly what this looks like. He saw Christ on the cross act on the love that he had for John. And this comes just moments before Christ gives the ultimate sacrifice of himself. He divested himself completely and was made like a man to be like us so that he could save us. He was humiliated to come to earth to die for us. And then he died in the most gruesome and horrible way without a trace of self-interest only for the love that he had for the world. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And in that moment, John knew love and it changed him forever. He saw Christ face to face. He saw love face to face. He understood it for the, probably the first time. And he was never the same because of it. We all have John 3.16 memorized. I think First John 3.16 should also be one of the first things that we memorize as new believers. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us. This is love. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, we might not always get opportunities to lay down our lives for our brethren, but we might easily say, I would die for him. I would die for her. You know, it's a lot easier to say this than to do it. It's a lot easier to think you would do this than to actually be presented with the opportunity. Most people will never have the opportunity to die for someone else. In John 15, 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. But look what Christ did. He did not lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies. Imagine that kind of love. If 
we can manifest the love of Christ through Christ by dying for our friends. Look at the incredible depth and breadth of his love. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He loved you and saved you while you were his enemy. Now you are his friend. Now you are brought in, you are reconciled, you are in fellowship with him. How much more is his love going to pour out on you? How much more, now that you've been reconciled, is your life going to be worth living? But it's not the life that the world gave you. Until we divest ourselves from the cares and concerns of this world and occupy our minds with Christ, we will think that Christ is the fault, that we are not living well in this world. And he is absolutely not. He has offered you a different world. He is making a greater to smaller argument here. The Hebrews called this Cal Wayomer. It was a common way of arguing for something that they couldn't experience themselves. Most of us will never experience the opportunity to lay down our lives for our brothers to, to see in our own works through the spirit that we have loved our brothers truly. But if we say that we are willing to do this, this greatest act, this totally selfless act, because you cannot get anything from dying from someone else, you're dead. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? If we're unwilling to share the world's goods, with our brothers and sisters, how are we going to be willing to share our lives with them? Yes, it's easy to say, I would die for him because you know what? You probably will never have to. But you know what's even harder is saying, I don't need to live this lavishly. I would much rather help my friend in need. I would much rather help my brother in Christ. God doesn't give us goods and comfort so that we can comfort ourselves so that we can have stability for ourselves. God doesn't feed our self-interest, our egoism. God gives us what we ask for others so that we can share with them and share his love. If God gave you everything you asked for, he would not be loving you. But if God gave you the opportunity to demonstrate agape love by giving you something that you could Sacrifice for someone else. This is true love. This word bios is used here. We get our English word biology from it. Notice, whoever has the world's goods, this is not riches. This is not wealth. This is not excess or extravagance. Whoever has the basic means of sustenance, whoever has a mode of life or a manner of living, any possessions, property, or livelihood. This doesn't mean if God has given you an excess and you don't give away that excess. But if you see someone in a lower position than you, and you say, no, because I will be uncomfortable. This is not love. This is not the love of God working in you 
Luke 2.20 or Luke 21.3, he said, truly I say to you, the poor widow put in more than all of them for they out of their surplus, out of their riches, out of their extra, their extravagance, put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on, all of her sustenance for life. She cast the cares of this world on God. That doesn't mean here are all my problems, God fix them. That means whatever does not need to be a problem for me, Lord, teach me that it's not a problem. Teach me to depend on you. Teach me to change my way of thinking from the world's standards of sustenance to yours. Some of the happiest people I've ever met, some of the happiest people I've ever read about, probably better, have had almost nothing. I read about this Chinese missionary named Bob Fu a long time ago. He spent most of his life in Chinese prisons, not allowed to own any property. He was in the Tiananmen Square massacre. He and his wife had to flee from their home. They had to hide in dungeons, in pits. They had to leave their country. They gave up everything. You know what's one thing that he never, ever, ever once said in his book? God took that from me. God changed his way of looking at the world. Bob Fu didn't need a 10-bedroom house to feel comfortable. He didn't even need his one-bedroom shanty in the countryside with a persimmon tree. Bob Fu just needed God. God provided for his basic needs. Jesus makes the argument in the Sermon on the Mount that God cares for the sparrows and he cares for the lilies of the valley. How much more does he care for you? But if you evaluate God's care for you based on your standard of what he should give you, it will always come short because you will always assess yourself as deserving more than is healthy for you to have. God does not serve you by serving the world's standard for you. God serves you by teaching you his standard, by teaching you dependence on him. In 1 John 2.16, we're told the lust, that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of the basic sustenance of life. This is not the pride of life of riches. This is our taking pride and our able to live our lives by our own means. I can do this apart from God. I've got a steady job with a basic income. I can make my mortgage payments. Look how good I'm doing. This is the boastful pride of life. I can do this apart from God. And until you learn that you can't and shouldn't, you shouldn't want to. This is not going to be a comfortable place for you to live. But when you find your comfort in him and rather than in riches, your comfort in him and rather than in your basic sustenance for life, you will find spiritual life welling up to the full. Very last thing that John has to say to us in this section, little children, technia, born ones, ones I care dearly about, my fellow brothers. Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
Now, unfortunately, I've seen some commentaries that say when you see someone who has a problem, don't just pray about it, go do something. Well, as true as this might be in its result, I don't appreciate the pot shots towards prayer. Yes, everything we ever do should begin with prayer. The problem is when we just tell them, oh, I hope someone helps you, or it'll all be better. No, we should start with prayer, but if we have the ability to help them, we should help them. We should reassess what we need and what they have. James 2.15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, bias, basic sustenance, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is this? What good is that? James is making a big argument in here about being justified before men. When the world looks on the body of believers, do we look like Christ? We are to love in deed and in truth. Notice how this happened in the book of Acts. As they have their mind set on Christ and his soon return, they all congregated in Jerusalem and they took care of the needs of one another. But notice where it began. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. The rest of the story doesn't come without this first verse. Unless they had prayed, unless they had been in fellowship with God by the filling of the Holy Spirit, what came from this could not have been. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They thought the same things because they had their mind occupied with the same person, with the same goal. Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any needed. This is an ultimate example. God often does this, where he points out major examples so that we might learn to do this in minor examples later on. He did this with Sodom and Gomorrah, where he destroyed a nation to show that he could. Where after this, he destroys Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit to show them the seriousness of it. Well, here in a grand scale, he shows us what loving one another looks like. We have our minds occupied with Christ. We are knitted together in prayer. We are filled with the Spirit. We are in fellowship with him. And the result of that is action. We do not start with action. Yes, it must lead to action. It should lead to action. James 4 tells us, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Our pleasures are found in those worldly things. Do we have an inaccurate estimation of the world's goods? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
and you do not or and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. And what are those motives? So that you may spend it on your own pleasures. The world is tempting. The world has a lot of things that promise that once we receive that, we are going to feel so much better. You know, as a high school student, I really wanted an iPod touch. And I worked and I worked and I sold basically everything I had in my room to get one. And you know that feeling when you open it up and it's brand new and it's shiny and it looks great. And then you realize, well, that's it. There's nothing more to this. Yeah, it'll do a couple of cool things, but this doesn't have any eternal satisfaction. I had a convertible in high school. I had to sell it when I moved to Korea. When I came back, I desperately wanted another car just like that one. But you know what? I settled with a little nice Nissan. And it served me well. It doesn't leak like my convertible did. It's not freezing in the winter. It's not luxurious by any means. But I love it. Because the Lord supplied the means of having it. And my convertible had only two seats. I was never able to say yes when a friend needed a ride. Now I can. The Lord has provided that. When we change our standard of what God taking care of us looks like to his standard, we'll see that he has been taking care of us all along the way. Not only in our daily sustenance, but in our spirit as well. Where if he had just given us whatever we wanted, whatever we thought we needed, we may have had some fleeting comfort in this world, but our spirits would have been hopelessly lost to the world. So the main idea, believers are all made righteous in Christ, but that righteousness ought to work its way from position into practice in the life of the believer. As we grow in knowledge of who he is and what he is like, as we see him more clearly, we are made to look more like him in the world. The mark of maturity in the life of a believer is the manifestation of his positional righteousness and outward acts of agape love for his fellow believers. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this amazing book that John wrote for us, this apostle of love who you prepared with the ultimate experience of love, with the ultimate witness of love, to write to us to invite us into intimate fellowship with you, to share in that love relationship that you have, so that as we look at you and as we stare at your face, just as John did, we understand even more the love that you have for us and the love that we ought to have for one another. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit by which we are able to do these deeds of righteousness, such as loving one another self-sacrificially. We pray that we might be obedient to do so and that we might have our minds renewed constantly by you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Be glorifying to you as we keep our eyes firmly trained on you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.